Well, if you have your Bible, whether it's physical or digital, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verses 4 to 9 this morning, Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the, the words are up on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let's remember uh, Rick Dean and the entire Dean family. As many of you know, Kathy, our dear sister, who's been a part of our church forever, um, went home to be with her Lord and Savior this week. And uh, I was just so uh, uh, pleased to see the way her children and her family and friends were able to be in the room and just sing her into glory and the testimony that they gave was just phenomenal. But let's remember Rick and, and Ricky and Isaac and the wives and children and grandchildren. I think there's even great-grandchildren. Is that right, Rick? You have great, not yet? Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. But let's pray for all of these this morning, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this Resurrection Sunday, we can celebrate uh, the passing and death of one of our dear sisters. Uh, for we know and we do not grieve like those who have no hope. We know the day is coming and the moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, that trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. Death will no longer have a sting to us. Sin will be defeated and Satan will be conquered once and for all. And we will live in immortality and in a perfect state forever. And to this we give you glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming, dying, and making salvation possible for your people. Lord, we thank you that not only did you make it possible, you accomplished it at all. So that we have no need to fear death this morning or the grave. You rose from that grave and you showed us what awaits us by trusting in you. And so this morning, as we turn to your word, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you speak through me? Would you give the message that the folks here need to hear? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so for those of us who have been raised in Florida, and go back maybe a few decades or more, uh, we might remember, we remember during spring break, how newspapers would oftentimes run a headline. And, and the headline would be spring break balcony deaths, colon, one, right? And then maybe a day or two later, it would be spring break balcony deaths, two. And this would continue all during the, basically the month of March when spring break would occur. And, and I remember some years that count got up to, you know, 14, 15 one year. I think down in Fort Lauderdale alone, they had just a number of deaths one year. And the reason why, I, that's kind of morbid to start your sermon with, right? But the reason why I bring it up is because a couple of weeks ago, I was, you know, uh, doing work and my, my news feed came up with a, a headline that a man in Panama City Beach, 
you know, fell from the balcony um, in, you know, uh, of the condominium and stuff that they were staying in. And so I clicked on it and, and I saw this guy right here. His name is Tim Ackerman. And he, it wasn't what I was expecting. It wasn't the typical, you know, young college student male who decided it's a good idea that, to go from one balcony to the next instead of just using the elevator. And, and there, were, there wasn't, you know, alcohol involved and a bunch of people are out on the balcony and one falls over and he's killed in this way. Not at all. He jumped, right? And here's his father of two, a loving, wonderful man by all accounts who jumps from the 23rd story balcony. But he didn't commit suicide. He didn't intentionally kill himself. You see, Tim Ackerman was a base jumper. You know what a base jumper is? It's a parachutist who decides that jumping from airplanes is not the way to go. I'm going to jump from tall buildings, tall bridges, Eiffel Tower, things like this. And oftentimes they'll jump from airplanes too, but it's that extra thrill of being able to jump from, you know, something and deploy. You only have a few seconds to deploy the chute. If there's any kind of problem at all, guess what? Well, Tim Ackerman found out. What is it? that causes people to jump from a perfectly good airplane, right? I mean, I don't get it. I mean, or, or, you know, uh, to do other risky behavior. The, the, the guys who put those suits on, you know, the bat suits, and they jump off the cliff and they zoom. Have you ever seen those? I mean, I think there's even uh, one of those three, you know, IMAX things where they do these guys and they put cameras on them and they fly like a bat and they fly for miles and they reach incredible speeds and they're just inches from the cliff face. Have you seen those guys? I mean, what is it about this, right? Well, I, I've watched these things because I have a somewhat of a fascination with it. I, I've matured in my old age, but in my younger age, okay, I did some things. And then I found out life insurance wouldn't pay anymore, so I stopped. And, and so I get it. And, but when you watch these documentaries, when they interview these guys and gals, inevitably they say something along these lines. When I do this, it makes me feel so what? Alive, exactly. I feel so alive when I jump out of that airplane. You know, I feel so alive when I, you know, free dive to 100 foot with no oxygen tank, you know? I feel so alive. You understand what they're getting at there? There's something it does inside of you. Know, it's like the adrenaline rush, the feeling, the thrill. The, you know, and, and, and if we're honest this morning, we all have our own version of base jumping, or we have at some point in our lives, right? For, for some people, it's the need for speed, right? And so we drive our cars and maybe a motorcycle and, you know, and there you go. And there's just something about that. Or for others, you know, it's shopping. <laughs> and, and, and in this particular kind of shopping, it's shopping for a really good deal, right? And, and we, yeah, see, I mean, there's a lot of you right now that are nodding and, and, and you know, right? Either it's the guy or the gal and you come home and when they come home, you know, um, they are just beaming, you know, and they're proud. And they're going to interrupt your basketball game to show you everything that they got on sale, right? You're thrilled about it. And, uh, and you got to celebrate with them. Uh, or maybe it's some kind of a hobby, like fishing. I know how I feel when I get a big fish on the line once in every blue moon, okay? It feels great. Or, or perhaps it's a social cause or a political cause, a new job. In fact, uh, we could almost say a new fill-in-the-blank, right? 
a new girlfriend, a new job, a new husband, a new car, a new toy, a new set of clothes, a new restaurant. But for others, this, I mean, I feel alive because I put food or some kind of drink or even worse, a drug into my system in order to feel alive. What drives us to do these things? Why do we go to such measures? Well, the scriptures teach us it, that it, the reason is that there is an emptiness in the core of our soul, which we are born with. And I didn't read them at the beginning, but I am in just a moment. The opening verses of the book of Ephesians explain that there is this existential emptiness. I mean, it, it just pervades us. It controls us. And it is so powerful that our only hope is, is if there's divine intervention. And this is why we do these things in order to feel alive, way beyond the normal enjoyment of a hobby or a meal or whatever it may be. Listen to what the apostle says in verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humankind. Um, for those of you who worship with us regularly, what I'm about to say won't surprise you, but for those who maybe are new or newer, what I'm about to say might shock you because what I'm gonna say is very counterintuitive and is definitely contradicts the common narrative that we receive from a multitude of voices in our society, in our educational system, in our upbringing, and in culture in general. And here it is. The reason why we have this deep existential emptiness in our soul is because we are born thoroughly, radically corrupted by sin. The reason we are so empty is because we are born sinners. And the depth of that sin, the pervasiveness of that sin is so deep and so extreme that God says in our natural human state, when we come out of the womb of our mothers to the point of death, unless God intervenes, we do not do one single thing that he says is good. In other words, God says in our natural state, we are not good people. And this sin creates a deep emptiness in us. He tells us in Romans chapter three, there is no one who is good, no, not one. Now, now that doesn't mean that somebody, you can't, we can't do something nice, that a person at work who maybe never professes the name of Jesus can't do something that helps his community, his, his, uh, his city or his, his fellow man and do something that is kind towards them. Civic goodness is something that anyone can do. That's the common grace of God that all can experience. But what God is talking about here is this ultimate moral and spiritual goodness. The Bible uses the word righteous. So literally that verse is, there is none who are righteous, no, not one. It means that we can't do anything that impresses God, that God sees as being spiritually righteous in our natural state. And the reason why is because we are born dead 
in our sin. We are incapable, in other words. A dead man can do nothing. He can't improve his situation. He can't do anything to impress us. A dead man is dead, right? He's helpless. And this is what God says about us. We are dead, thoroughly helpless, incapable of doing anything to please him. And as a result of this state that we're born in, God's just sentence and condemnation is his wrath. We looked at that Friday night in the Good Friday service, but I, this week in my devotions, I had a sobering reminder of the depth of God's wrath towards sin, that every human is under unless Christ intervenes. In, in Matthew chapter 13, I guess it caught my attention because it was a fishing metaphor, right? Uh, you know, Jesus would use metaphors and parables to, to teach about the kingdom of God. And in Matthew 13, he uses a fishing metaphor. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. A fisherman goes and he throws out his net and he gathers all of these fish in. He takes that net to the bank and there he does something that would not maybe go over too well today. He takes all the fish that are good and he puts them in a box so that he can eat them or sell them later. And all the junk fish, that's what we call you know, junk fish, the fish that you can't eat, he just takes and he doesn't throw them back in the water. He throws them over here on the bank for the birds of prey to eat and they're destroyed. And then Jesus says this, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. <clears throat> this is the end. This is the ultimate destination of every human being who rejects Jesus Christ. It's condemnation and it's wrath. These verses are dark, aren't they? But as dark as the first three verses are, the first two words of verse four just are, they're just filled with light. What are the two first two words? Verse four, but God, right? Say it with me, but God. All right, you're not quite awake. One more time, but God. Now you're awake, okay? But God, those two little words, right? Repeatedly through scripture, they have been used to indicate a seismic, even history-changing event and at the very least, a life-altering truth is being given to us. So for example, in Genesis chapter three, first pages of the Bible, God is with Adam and Eve and he's telling them about the garden and then the scriptures say, but God said, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in that day you will die. In Genesis chapter eight, you find Noah on the ark with the beasts that are there rescued from the flood and the flood has been going on for hundreds of days now. And then chapter eight says, but God remembered Noah and the livestock that are on the ark. In Genesis chapter 50, you have Joseph. You know, the story of Joseph, his brothers hated him. They thought about killing him, but then instead they sold him into slavery. And over the six subsequent years as a slave in Egypt, Joseph is promoted and ultimately finds himself as the second in command in that nation. And when a famine breaks out throughout the Mideast, many, many years later, his brothers end up coming before him wanting food and they don't recognize him. 
At the end of that story, when he finally reveals himself and he says to his brothers, I'm Joseph, I'm the one who you meant to kill and you meant evil for, but God meant it for good. And then you come to the book of Luke, Luke 16, Jesus to the Pharisees. And he goes, you look so great on the outside. You look so righteous and you're great you know, Easter clothing and everything else and everything looks so clean and good about you and you put your self forward as righteous, but God knows your heart. In Acts 10, Peter finds himself in the home of Cornelius, the centurion, who's a Gentile. And if you know anything about the Jews and the Israelites, it was forbidden for them to be in that kind of contact with Gentiles because that made them unclean because the Gentiles were considered unclean and lesser because they were not God's chosen people. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter says to these Gentiles, you know that me as a Jew, as an Israelite, I'm not even supposed to be in here with you, certainly not eating with you, but God has shown me that I am to call no person common or unclean. What a message we need in this day of racial tension in our world. But God says no person is common or unclean because all of us have been created in the image of God. And then later in this chapter, Peter will say to these same people, do you know that we Israelites, we crucified and murdered Jesus, but God raised him again on the third day. But God, two phenomenal words. The respected English pastor from the last century, early part of the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says about this, in a sense, these two little words, but God, contain the whole of the gospel. These two little words bring the brightest spotlight penetrating the darkness of humanity's sin and our fallen condition, but God, God comes in and he solves our God-sized problems, but God. And this intervention on God's part, it is solely due to his character. Not from our character or not from anything that we have done. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You know, this chapter, if it does anything, it should disabuse us of the rationale that concludes that in some way, because of the blessings that we have from God, we have done something to earn them. That we earn God's grace and mercy. No, this chapter just absolutely prohibits that mentality. God's mercy, the mercy is God not giving us something that we actually do deserve. And as we've already pointed out, what we actually do deserve in our natural state, born as human beings, we deserve wrath. The wages of our sin is death. And death here isn't just the physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. It's eternal death. It is the separation of our being and our soul from our creator and the joys of eternity that happen with him alone. That's what we deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Instead, 
Before time ever began, he chose to pour out his love and not his wrath on those whom he would have to be his children. As this passage makes clear, this choice to love us, it's not due to our innate goodness. It's not because our efforts to impress him in some way have earned his favor. His intervention is simply due to his character, his sovereign grace, his immeasurable, unexplainable love. That's the source of why he intervenes. You know, this church at Ephesus at this point in time is a relatively newer church, and Paul is writing to them, the Apostle Paul, many years later, maybe 20 years later or so, he will write to his protege, young man by the name of Timothy, who by that time is now the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And and this is what he writes to Timothy. He says, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. If mercy Is God not giving us something that we do deserve, in this case, his wrath and condemnation? Grace is God giving us um, something that we do not deserve, right? In this case, salvation. You see, grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Grace is God giving us something that we do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. You know, we, we learned a, a, a definition. I had no idea as a child in Sunday school about grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. favor. Right, a lot of you learned the same thing. Un, unmerited or unearned favor. God's grace towards us, that unmerited favor, it flows out of his infinite love for us and his intention to glorify Jesus Christ through our lives. Our ultimate experience of God's grace in Jesus is what it does to us. And so we really tangibly experience this. And and the rest of the passage actually helps us understand how this comes about. So let's conclude this morning with God's, how God, and see how God's intervention brings true life to us. For everyone, right? We talked about it at the beginning, who wants to feel alive. This passage has the answer of not only what is it, what does it look like to truly be alive, but also how do we get that kind of life? These final verses are eye-opening. The first thing we see is that true life comes with resurrection power. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We start out dead Dead people, in order to have any kind of interaction with God, must be brought to life. And this is what God does, and it comes out of His grace. It's not, dead people cannot make themselves alive, right? Dead people come to life because God intervenes in their life and resurrects them. He gives, in this case, he gives us a, a new heart. Instead of a heart that is hard towards God, instead of a heart that is intent on following our own selfish 
ambitions, as he saw earlier in Ephesians 2, actually following the way of the prince and power of this world, Satan himself, for that to change and that direction of life to change and that inclination of the heart to change, God must give us a new heart. He must bring dead people to life. And this is why earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul says to them, I'm praying that you begin to understand and experience and know this incredible power of God that is already at work in your life and that is working in your life right now. That this is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We come into the family of God because God works in our life the way he worked 2,000 years ago when he raised Jesus from the dead. Do you understand that? That your salvation, Christian, is as much a miracle in the scheme of God's plan as the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself because it's the same power at work in our lives. So true life comes with this resurrection power, and as a result, we're made alive spiritually. We have eyes that can truly see. We have ears that can hear and a mind that can understand the Word of God and accept the truth of God. It means that we now have a new disposition, a new inclination of the heart, and this new power to live life in a way that is pleasing and honorable to Christ. True life comes with resurrection power. Secondly, true life saves us from the stranglehold and the penalty of sin. By grace, you have been saved. Read that with me again, church. By grace, you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God towards sin. Our salvation has rescued us from the very just sentence that God passes on our sin. And the reason why this can happen is because Christ took our place on that cross and he died the death that we deserve to die because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God. This true life also identifies us with Christ and his heavenly kingdom. Verse six says, he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Those words raised up. The words raised up in verse six. This is different than the idea of being made alive with Christ in verses four and five. It's not the same thing. In verse four, made alive with Christ, this is talking about resurrection power. This is different, right? Now, because of our union with Christ, right? We, if you're a believer, we are now identified with Jesus's death. He died for us, he died in our place, his burial, his resurrection. We're also identified with his ascension. Do you know what I mean there? You see, after Jesus was resurrected 40 days later, after interacting with more than 500 people and who touched him and talked with him. If, you, if you're here and you wonder whether or not this whole story of the resurrection is even true, we need to have a deeper conversation because there's so much evidence 
within the scriptures and within history that the resurrection is true. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. But here are these people, they interact with Jesus for 40 days, and then at the end of the 40 days, their testimony is, is that one day he literally physically ascended and went to heaven. The angel said, why are you standing here looking? Because he's already told you to go back to the city, and just as he ascended, one day he will return physically, literally, bodily. It will happen one day. This was the ascension of Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the scriptures tell us, and right now he rules over all of his kingdom and all of this world, and he acts as our heavenly high priest. When the the scriptures here are talking about being raised up with Jesus, it means that we too are identified and in union with him as our ascended Lord sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. The implications of this are huge, church. It means that we have access to God that we can actually have a vital, life-giving relationship with Him. The great desire, maybe a sub-theme of the Scriptures, is this desire that we who are now born in sin could be rescued in such a way that we could actually know God. Know God the way Adam and Eve knew God in the garden before the fall. That level of intimacy and and relationship with God that was lost because of sin. And the great message and and desire of the scripture is that once again, we could have that kind of intimacy. That word know, it's it's a word that really speaks throughout the scriptures of a deep, not just head knowledge, but soul deep knowledge, like a a husband who knows his wife in in the fullest sense of that word. And so what this is saying to us is it is possible because of our union in Christ for us to to know God, to have that kind of intimate, real relationship. This is living life totally different than needing to get a thrill or an adrenaline jump because of risky behavior. You don't need that when you are tied in and connected with the creator of the universe, our God. And you find that he satisfies that deep emptiness in the soul that creates such an existential crisis and existential loneliness. He fills that. And that happens because we are united with Christ in his ascension. And as a result, we end up having a more complete perspective on life, on the universe, on what God's eternal plan actually is. Dr. James Boyce writes that our being taken up into heaven with Christ, our ascension means that we have been given a new environment. We're no longer creatures only of this world bound by what we can see and touch and smell and hear and taste. We are now creatures of the greater heavenly realm who now, because of our union with Christ, think and work and speak in spiritual categories. Through this union with Christ, we have that intimate, pervasive relationship. The entire trajectory of our lives is then changed. Even our conception of what life is I want to feel alive. Our entire conception of even what that phrase means changes after we have this kind of encounter with our Lord Jesus Christ. We think differently. We realize that the things of this world 
can be thrilling. They can be enjoyed, and they should be enjoyed. There's nothing wrong with it. It's kind of funny. After the first service, a young man who was visiting with us and a young lady who regularly worships, they come up, and they're looking at me with big eyes, and he said, today's my birthday, and I'm supposed to go parachuting down in uh, Sebastian. <laughs> and she's like, is God telling us not to go? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I said, no, nah, go enjoy it. It's, you know, it's fun. But, but, but that, is, that doesn't give us life. That's one of the blessings of life that we can now enjoy because we have true life with Jesus Christ because he is that divine, right? Life runs through the vine and we're the branches and we're plugged into that vine and we're drawing our life from him. So how do we get this? If you don't have this kind of life this morning, the final point here is that true life comes only through faith in Jesus and his work, not our works. You don't earn your way into this kind of life. For by grace, the scriptures say, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you've come here this morning, perhaps with family or friends, because it's Easter, the whole part of Christianity, the most basic thing that you need to know is right here. That you need a relationship with God and the only way that relationship happens is through Jesus Christ, through trusting in him. It doesn't come by making yourself into a better person. It doesn't come by improving yourself and engaging in some kind of self-help program. It, it comes by humbly admitting, I am a sinner. I am corrupt. I love myself. I serve myself. I pursue self. I may do some things that people like, but even that kind of gives me a good feeling. And it starts right there, admitting who we are and how we're born. And then the scriptures tell us that if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, if we will believe, if we will commit faith, trust ourselves to Jesus alone, stop trying to impress God through our efforts, if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. This new life will begin in you. And so if you don't have this new life this morning, or you want to know more about this new life, I hope that you'll see me after the service or you'll come over to our care area where we have pastors and Stephen ministers. We would love to pray with you, to talk with you, to talk more about this and maybe begin a conversation that could answer questions that you probably have on this matter. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you lived that life that we were supposed to live. You perfectly obeyed the commands of God. And then you endured the, the most unjust of sentences and were crucified and, and you died in our place. Lord, we thank you for this. And I would ask this morning that you would move in the hearts of those who do not yet know you. Lord, there are some here, maybe to some through the, who are watching through the internet who are curious. No doubt, Lord, in their heart, they feel that sense of emptiness. They feel that tug towards you. Lord, would they begin to see their need to confess their sins and commit their life to Christ? Would you give them a heart that is drawn to Jesus like the moth is drawn to the flame? Would you make him just irresistible to them? Would you do this work of grace in the lives of those who are here, the lives of those that many of us love, who we want to spend eternity with? 
In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.